Welcome to the Commission Podcast. This week we start hearing seminars from our Revive Bible Festival. Today we have Andrew Satch, pastor at Grace Church Greenwich, speaking on doubt in the city. A study in 2018 showed that 44% of people in the UK identified as non-religious. And yet still, half that number would also identify as spiritual. Where are we in the age of comfortable agnosticism? And what can be done to address evangelism in that climate? We hope you enjoy. Good afternoon. And welcome to Doubt in the City. That's the name of the seminar. My name's Andy Satch, and I'm from Grace Church Greenwich, which is not a commission church, but certainly a friend of commission churches. And I'm delighted to be here for my second revive. And nice to be um, with you this afternoon to look at this subject of doubt or agnosticism that we encounter in the city. Now, I'm not a songwriter, although I kind of want to be one. I can't play the guitar, but I do occasionally write lyrics. And um, this is how I imagine the lyrics of a modern Londoner might go. And I was debating, shall I sing it or shall I just give it the poem? I, th- I think I'll sing it, so humor me. Um, I'm not a songwriter. Better not to be dogmatic. No one likes a crazed fanatic. Here's a boy who's got his wits. On the fence, that's where he sits, saying no one's right or wrong. Maybe, baby, maybe, baby, that's the chorus of the wise agnostic song. Buddha, Allah, I don't care. Who's to say what God is there? I love Manu, she loves Spurs. I've got my truth, she's got hers. We don't need to disagree. Maybe, baby. Maybe, baby, that's what I say to your Christianity. Um, Not a great tune. You could probably do better. Thank you. But those are, they're not great lyrics, but they're probably contemporary lyrics, aren't they? You know, I'm not saying that you're right. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm just saying maybe. I don't know. Allah, maybe, if that's your thing. You know, if you're a Muslim, I haven't got anything against you being a Muslim. If you're a Hindu, good for you. Me? I'm on the fence. And it just seems the wisest, most sensible place to be for a 21st century person. Um, Agnostic is popular. The the word agnostic, it just comes from the ancient word gnosis, which means knowledge. And then you put an A in front of it, and it means not. So, you know, you could say that something is atypical when it's not typical, or something's asymmetrical when it's not symmetrical. You could express being a vegetarian as being an a-carnivore, or somebody who hates bagpipes you could describe as being a-Scottish. If gnosis is about knowing, then agnosis, or agnostic, is about not knowing. Um, And not knowing, at least when it comes to religion, is increasingly popular. So the British Social Attitudes Survey, um, once every 10 years it covers religion as one of its questions, and in 1998, they discovered that 17% of the British population thought of themselves as non-religious. But 10 years later, in 2018, that had risen to 44%. So double the proportion of people in just 10 years who identify as non-religious. But as the eminent church um, statistician, Peter Briley, recently told me, I had a Zoom call with him earlier this year, and a lovely man, and he's, he knows more about the statistics of church attendance and church belief in England than almost anyone else. And he said to me, when you explore more deeply what the non-religious believe, 
it turns out a surprising proportion of them believe in quite religious things. So, for example, 47% of people who say that they're not religious say that they are spiritual. Or 35% of the non-religious believe in some kind of higher power. 34%, you know, over a third of them, believe in life after death. So people aren't atheists. Uh, they're not even sort of anti-Christianity. They just don't know. They don't want to be pinned down to a particular dogma. But they, you know, they're open-minded spiritually. Maybe there's something out there. Maybe there's some kind of spiritual higher power or life beyond the grave. I just don't know. And the great thing about I don't know is it just seems more humble, doesn't it? We're suspicious of people who are too sure. What, you're saying that you're right and everyone else is wrong, you Christians? That sounds very arrogant. And also we're concerned that too sure in the end leads to violence, violently sure. All of those wars in the name of religion. And by the way, when people say to me, that religion causes all the wars. I always want to come back and say, what do Joseph Stalin, Pol Pot, and Chairman Mao have in common? And the answer is, they're the three people who killed most other people, or at least were over in control of killing most other people in the last century, and they're all also atheists. So it's not just religion that kills people. Like atheists kill people. I mean, basically humans kill people, don't they? They believe different things. But the agnostic says, well, if only they hadn't been so sure about their communism, and if only they weren't so sure about their Islam, and you weren't so sure about your Christianity, then we'd all live much more peaceably. So it's kind of attractive for that reason. It's humble, it's peaceable, and it's expressed um, popularly. For example, by the comedian Marcus Brigstock, he puts it like this. The truth, as I see it, is that I'd rather stay in a place of confusion amongst similar restless souls shuffling about in the hope that there might be a sign pointing one way or the other than leap aboard whichever bandwagon looks like it's got some momentum behind it and a confident driver. We might find God. We should probably have a plan for that in case we startle him and he goes for us. I don't mind if we don't find him. I'd be just as happy to discover that whatever road it is that I'm on, I'm not walking it alone. Now, I don't know about you, but this is most of my friends, right? So um, I've got some friends who are um, devoted to other religions. I've got a good Hindu friend and um, at least a a friend who's married to a Muslim. So I kind of, I, I know some people with other religions, but most of my friends, they just don't know and they don't really care. And they're somewhere on the fence. Maybe they're open-minded spiritually, but they're agnostic when it comes to Christianity. Now, I think it's helpful to distinguish three different ways in which people can be agnostic. So on the one hand, you can be agnostic about something because you just haven't looked into it. So, you know, it would be possible to know, but you don't know because you've never checked. So I could say, you know, I'm agnostic about how many helium balloons it would take to send my mother into space. You know, I mean, it, it would be possible to know. It's a fairly simple experiment. But my mum's scared of heights, and so you know, it doesn't seem very kind to find out. And some people might be agnostic about Jesus in that sense. You know, I, I don't know because I've never checked. I've never looked into it. You know, I had a couple of RE lessons when I was at school. I wasn't particularly inspired by them. 
but I've never taken it any further. And of course, um, there might be many of our friends who are like that. People are increasingly ignorant about the Christian message in our culture. I don't know, because I've never looked into it, but it would be possible to know. There's another kind of doubt, though, another kind of agnosticism that is more ultimate and absolute than that. And this second kind of agnostic isn't just saying, I don't know. They're saying, we can't know. Like, it would not be possible to know whether there was a God. How could we ever know one, one way or the other for sure? But the trouble with that position, when you think about it, is it's ironically not very agnostic about itself. That person is saying, I know that you can't know. And you're like, really? Well, what makes you so sure that you can't be sure? To, to say, I know that there is not enough evidence for Jesus is actually a claim to have researched all of the evidence in the universe. Only then could you be sure. I mean, imagine, give an analogy, instead of saying, I know there's not enough evidence for Jesus, you say, I know there's no treasure hidden in Leicestershire. I mean, how could you know that? You'd have to have dug everywhere. What if there was a diamond necklace hidden in a detergent bottle at a postcode that the police haven't raided yet? Or a gold ingot buried under some inconspicuous cabbage field? I mean, let's face it, the University of Leicestershire Archaeological Services do a lot more digging than most of us. They didn't even know until recently that the bones of King Richard III were under their local car park. I mean, to be sure that something doesn't exist, you have to know everything. And of course, the agnostic doesn't. It's an absurd claim. Um, now, some of you at this point are worrying about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle in quantum physics um, or Gödel's incompleteness theorem in Boolean algebra. But if you know about, enough about quantum mechanics or logic to know what they are, then you also know that they don't really apply to questions of God's existence. And if the only Heisenberg that you know is the badass anti-hero from the Netflix series about crystal meth, then you don't need to worry about it either. So I don't know because I've not checked. That's lots of people, I think, in London. I can't know. It's actually an incoherent position. But the third kind, and I think this is probably the most popular kind, is I don't know and I don't want to know. Leave me alone, please. You know, I don't know for this person, it's just a strategy to apply the philosophical handbrake to avoid being budged from the status quo. Because I'm basically happy with my life right now. I don't want the inconvenience of these big religious questions. So just leave me alone. I don't know. I'm just agnostic. I'm not particularly into that. Thanks. You know, friends, he said to me, I'm not the religious type. In fact, um, when I moved into my previous house, not where I live now, but I lived in the East End for about 15 years. And oh, sorry, 15 years ago, I moved into the East End. And the, the day that I moved in, I met my next door neighbor. And the first thing he said to me was, we're not religious, which I, I took to be a testimony to the evangelistic efforts of my predecessor in the house, that they'd done their best to talk to him. But I'm not the religious type. Um, I don't know. I don't really want to know. And this reminds me of a brilliant lecture by the late Dr. Mike Ovey when I was at Bible College. And um, Mike Ovey one day walked into the lecture room and said, the world is flat, convince me otherwise. And then he sat down and smiled and folded his, his arms and waited. 
And somebody put their hand up and said, well, um, it looks round from space, which is yeah, it's quite a good opening argument. And he said, oh, no, NASA faked the photographs. Okay, and somebody else said, well, it's because it has to be round because the magnetic field or so-and-so. He says, oh, you're just trying to dazzle me with science. How can I check that that's true? And people just, you know, gave all these different arguments about there's a horizon and it disappears behind you and... He said, well, that's just because light bends. And you know, whatever people said, he had a reason to get out of it, however absurd the reason became. And he was saying stupid things, but he didn't care because he was just avoiding being pinned down. And after a little while, about 10 minutes or so into the lecture, someone said, look, it doesn't matter what we say, you just find some reason of dodging it. It's like you don't even want to be convinced. At which point he smiled and said... Today's lecture is on scepticism. Let's make a start. And his point was that the sceptic, or the agnostic, as we can call them, they don't actually want to arrive anywhere. They're trying to avoid it. And you always know when you're talking to this person because they got some big question about Christianity. You know, it's like, I don't know, the Trinity, or isn't Christianity anti-gay, or, you know, whatever it is, one of the questions. But you, you do your best to answer it, and then they suddenly switch tacks. It's not like, I had this problem, you solved it, great. It's, well, here's another problem then. And then you try and address his other problem, and, okay, well, here's another problem then. It just, they keep moving the goalposts until they score. And it's like, but are you really wanting to find out if this is true? Or are you just trying to throw anything at it so you don't have to engage? And, of course, I think that's the point. Because here's the problem. People just fear that Christianity would be awful, it's not that they worry that it's not true. I mean, maybe they think it's not true, but they, they just think it would be miserable to be a Christian. You know, Christianity, well, if you could express it in a color, it would be gray. If you could express the Christian ethic in a word, it would be don't. Um, if you could imagine a Christian party, as if there could be such a thing, people would be serving only slur which one of my friends describes as Christian champagne. <laughs> um, actually, it was Phil Alcock, some of you know, from um, Christchurch Mayfair. He first gave me this illustration. But he said he, he was surprised um, when he discovered, or I don't know if it's he himself, or he was talking to friends who were surprised when they heard that Jesus' first recorded miracle in John's Gospel was turning water into wine. And, of course, the chemistry of that is kind of surprising. I mean, it's not actually that hard to do. Um, I, I used to be a, a scientist before being a pastor, so I think I can do it now. Here's a, an empty glass with nothing in it. Here's some water. And if I pour it in... <laughs> there we are. Um, I wouldn't recommend drinking this, by the way. It's, it's, a, it's quite a strong laxative, <laughs> the chemicals involved. Um, but Phil said it, it wasn't so much the chemistry that's surprising, because sure, H2O to C2H5OH, plus all the vanillins and flavanols and tannins and anthocyanins that make up wine chemistry. I mean, you can't do it in the laboratory. But if Jesus is God, then, you know, why shouldn't he do something unusual with the atoms of the universe? You know, God can break the rules if he made the rules. So it wasn't so much that. The, the surprise for him was that Jesus wasn't going around instead turning all the wine into water. 
as if Jesus' greatest fear was that people might be having too much fun and he had to stamp it out. I think a lot of people think that about Christianity. It's there to suck all the joy out of my life. Of course, Christianity is against drunkenness. Uh, It's not against wine. I mean, Jesus spoke often about the wine industry and winemaking with approval. You know, his first miracle to turn water into wine. To turn water into, it turns out, really quite a lot of wine. I think it's about 800 bottles of excellent wine at this wedding. So Jesus isn't against parties. The Bible's against drunkenness, but that's because drunkenness can really hurt you. I mean, alcohol abuse can really hurt you. And I can think of a couple of families I know that have been wrecked through alcoholism. And similarly, the Bible's not against sex. I mean, it'd be weird if it was, wasn't it? Because obviously, you know, sex involves bits of your bodies that fit together with other parts of people's bodies that a creator probably would have noticed before we did. You know, if God made us, it's not like we suddenly discovered how to have sex with our bodies and God think, oh, bother, I didn't realize it could do that. I mean, it's, it's kind of obviously part of the design, isn't it? And the Bible's not against sex. It celebrates sex, you know, the second chapter of the Bible. It's a great hymn of praise because of two people joined together uh, in all that that means. But the Bible's against the abuse of sex, and so is anyone sensible who thinks about it. I really have to say the names Harvey Weinstein or Jimmy Savile. And we know that not all sex is good. So it turns out the Bible wants to limit us from hurting ourselves by using things wrongly. But the Bible couldn't be more positive about sex and marriage and wine and parties and joy and things like this, revive. And it might just be that our friends don't know that. They they think it would be awful. And we've got to show them something of how brilliant it can be. And let's just, rather than me just speaking for the whole 45 minutes, this is meant to be a seminar, so I think that means moderately interactive. Mostly I'm going to talk. But um, why don't you turn to your neighbour and... One of the things Glenn Scrivener got us to do recently on a church weekend away was to just finish the sentence, um, I love Jesus because, or one of the great things about my church family is. And you've just got to start a sentence with Jesus or about your church family and something that you think is good about it. And it can be anything, something you like about Jesus, something you like about your church family. Um, So why don't you, I mean, it's not a difficult question, so turn to your neighbor, the first thing that comes into your head One of the things I love about Jesus is, one of the things I love about my church family is, and I'm going to give you like two minutes, so off you go. It's encouraging to me that people have lots to say on those questions, rather than being silenced. But just to speak more like that would be a great help, wouldn't it? Here we are in Revive, and we're Christians sharing the joy of knowing the Lord Jesus. But just to speak in the same way, um, someone at work, you know, one of the things I really love about Jesus is... I dare you to say a sentence that starts that way this week. Or, what were you doing with the weekend? Oh, well, I was away with my church and a whole load of other churches in Kent. Um, you know, one of the things I most love about my church is, it's kind of, kind of an easy conversation, isn't it, for Monday morning. People are probably going to ask you about your weekend. Um, but rather than just saying something about, you know, the activities or um, whatever, why not say something you love about being part of God's people? Something you love about Jesus. Because I think we've got to convince people not only that Christianity is true, but that it is good. Otherwise, they're just going to make excuses to avoid finding out if it's true. 
lest it turns out to be awful. Um, but then, okay, you think, well, maybe it is good. You know, I can see my Christian friends, and certainly this was true of me at university as a skeptic. The Christians I know didn't have dull lives. They had fantastic lives. And I, I kind of saw a little bit of their Christian community at church. I remember actually my next-door neighbor in halls um, went out before I wake up in the morning because I wasn't a Christian, so I you know, slept until about midday as a typical fresher. He went to church. He was missing for the entire day. And he got back about 8 p.m. And like, Paul, where have you been? At church. Just like, what? How could you have been gone that long? Well, it turns out he went to church in the morning and then there was a family at church. He said, oh, do you want to come around for lunch? And he went around for lunch and then he played with their kids all afternoon. They went off the park and then they said, oh, do you want to come swimming with us? We often go swimming on Sunday afternoon. So he did. And then he came back and went to the evening service and he came back. And I thought, wow, it's this kind of whole family that I'm not part of. Well, I could see there was good things about it. And then I thought, but is it true? And I think for a lot of people today, it's that way round. I've got to be convinced it's good enough to not kind of just try and keep at arm's length. And then, okay, I will have a look. Is it true? Or is it just something that people would like to, be, to believe? And I want to turn to 1 John in the New Testament. I find this a really helpful chapter to explain the gospel to agnostics. It's not really originally what it's for. It's written to Christians to reassure them that they were the real thing. But it, it, it can be, I think, quite a useful passage for evangelism as well. So 1 John, chapter 1. Um, I've actually got an old, an old NIV, which is probably falls between every stool here. So if you've got the NIV 2011, I don't know if it's the same. This is the old one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life, The life appeared, we've seen it, we testified to it, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that which we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to suck all of the joy out of your life. No, 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 we we write this to make our joy complete. He says. Now, I think this is an extraordinary paragraph, although people may not realize. So I often will read it to someone and say, you know, I think that is one of the strangest paragraphs in all of literature. And here is why. It, can, it combines two things that by themselves are quite normal. Um, on the one hand, it's a paragraph of philosophizing about the biggest questions of existence. You know, what is life? What is the essence of life itself? Um, where do we all come from? Where did it all begin? What's the origins of the universe? You know, it's not unusual to find people speculating again about these kinds of things, either on um, BBC documentaries or in that section of Waterstones about the spirituality kind of section, um, or most of all in modern art galleries. I love going to art galleries. Um, I, I went yesterday to the White Cube in Bermondsey. It's one of my favourite ones. Because um, modern artists are often grappling with major questions. What does it mean to be a human being? Um, what does it mean to be male or female? Where did it all come from? Where it's all going to go, etc. Um, I recently went to the White Cube, well, yesterday, but a few years ago I went there and saw a, a collection of 350 paintings by the celebrated German artist Peter Dreyer. Um, each of the 350 paintings me- measured 10 by 8 inches. And all 350 pictures were of the same empty glass of water. 
Um, in fact, Peter Dreher has painted this glass of water almost every day since the mid-90s. I mean, this is amazing. Right? And it, it, this, these aren't just little sketches. These are beautiful pictures capturing the way the light has refracted through the window in the glass. And, yeah, it's quite a complicated thing. And it takes a couple of hours, I think, for each one. And he's done it every single day. And here's a collection. It's quite, it's quite a cool exhibit, actually. But then more interesting than the exhibit itself was why did he do this? And then there's all the blurb that you get, you know, on, on the side of the gallery or if you buy the notes. And Peter Dreher was exploring that there could be great fullness even in an empty glass. I bet they're quite tough with that one. And, you know, philosophizing, it's, it's everywhere. It's in Waterstones, it's in modern art galleries, it's on the BBC. We're, we're used to people philosophizing. On the other hand, my stepbrother um, lives in Hyams Park, and he recently put on his Facebook feed, went to the Stag and Lantern um, Good IPA. Right now... And that's a shout-out, by the way, if you know friends in Hines Park. Um, the Stag and Lantern Microbrewery, and apparently it's pretty good. And this is, again, normal. People giving a personal review or a personal description of something that happened to them. Thomas went to the Stag and Lantern. He had IPA. He drank it. He thought it was good. I mean, this is normal. Like, over a billion people upload their thoughts to Facebook every day about where they are and what they're doing. Maybe you're doing it with hashtag Revive22, whatever it is, today. That's normal. But you don't ever get the two combined, I don't think. The philosophizing is all hand-wavy, and the Facebook thing is pretty parochial, but you never get the two combined. You, know, like you never get someone saying, you, you never guess who walked into the stag and lantern this morning. The beginning of the universe walked in. That would be a very odd Facebook post, wouldn't it? You know, I met eternal life in my boat today, and I took him for a trip and we caught some fish together. What? That, that's what John is saying. We're kind of used to it because we're Christians. You probably know the paragraph, but it's a very strange paragraph. That which was from the beginning, the origin of the universe, which we heard, we saw. Yeah, I've, I've seen the beginning of the universe, haven't you? I, I certainly have and touched him. The life appeared. We saw it. We testified to it. We proclaimed to you that which we've seen and heard. And here's the amazing thing about the, the New Testament or the early Christians. For them, these greatest questions of philosophy were a person or are a person who they knew intimately. Of course, they're talking about Jesus, obviously. But the great thing about this is that the philosophical became historical. Um, life, eternal life, was personal. And you can be much more sure about personal than philosophical. And if I ask you, what is your philosophy of the origin of the universe, where you have one view and your colleague at work has another view, and your next-door neighbor has a third view, and you're all just discussing, you know, hand-wavy philosophy. But if I ask you about an actual fact that you were a witness to, like, did you go to a big top and listen to a bald bloke who made some water change color in a glass? Did you? Like, yes. Well, how sure are you about that? You know, people always ask about Christianity, don't they? How sure are you? You know, you were 80% sure now. 100% sure, aren't you? I mean, it's like you were here. It's very easy to be sure about 
an encounter, especially if something unusual happens. And that was you know, moderately unusual, except that you realized that I'd faked the chemistry. But if I'd actually turned water into wine, then you would definitely remember. Or if you'd been to a funeral and watched the guy, well, even better, an execution and then a funeral, and then three days later you'd seen the guy he was killed and buried alive again, you would remember that. And you'd be very sure about it, wouldn't you? I think there's an allusion here. When John says, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, what we've looked at, and our hands have touched... I think there's an allusion there to the encounter that his friend Thomas had with the risen Jesus. We call him Doubting Thomas, um, but I want to call him Agnostic Thomas for the purposes of this seminar. Um, He's the the patron saint of skeptics. Actually, he's not. He's the patron saint of architects for reasons that I don't really understand. But um, Doubting Thomas, I mean, you know, he says what lots of people today would say. I can't believe in a resurrection. Life after death, I can't believe that unless I personally were to see him and put my fingers into the marks where they put the nails at the crucifixion and put my hand in his side. It's actually quite a good test, isn't it? Because by asking to examine the execution scars, Thomas can both check that Jesus is alive, because normally you can check whether someone's alive by touching them. Um, I don't know if anyone here has ever touched a, a corpse Um, But it's a very strange feeling. You can tell someone's alive when you touch them, but you can also, by examining the execution scars, check that the person who is alive is the same as the person who was dead. I want to check, you know, oh yeah, it's definitely him, because that's the mark where they put the nail in, that's that's where they put the spear in. Um, Again, if you're a fan of art, I recommend Caravaggio's amazing painting, The Incredulity of St. Thomas, and it's a picture of this scene, and what I love about it is it isn't sort of fairy, fairy story art. You know, sometimes Jesus looks really fake. You know, he's got uh, this sort of fixed, weird smile on and a halo and then floats a bit and is wearing a nightie. Um, it's not that kind of picture. It's a very gory, gruesome, realistic picture. And this old man, John, is kind of literally peering into the wound to check. And then Thomas says, I believe my, my Lord and my God, he says. And you ask Thomas, how sure are you? Well, like I'm 100% sure. Because I saw it. I touched him. The life appeared. And this is really the unique thing, I think, about Christianity. It's not just a philosophy. It's a person. And the person who met him, the people who met him, were, were really sure. Now, um, you know, you compare that with other philosophies. Um, I mean, atheism is a bit of a weird one, but says who? I mean, atheism isn't, isn't really attached to anything historically. It's just a theory of a, actually a minority of, of modern people. Or Islam. You know, I met the angel Gabriel in a cave, honest, and this is what he said. Well, did you meet the angel Gabriel? I mean, how would we know that? We just got your word for it, Muhammad. Whereas Christianity, you've got Jesus and then many eyewitnesses testifying to what they've seen and heard and touched and actually willing to be martyred for it. Of course, people do die for a lie, don't they? But you don't die for something that you know is a lie. That's the key thing. So the people who flew the planes into the World Trade Center, they thought that they were going to paradise because of that. They're not going to paradise. That's a lie. 
but they thought they were going to paradise because they believed in it. You, you give your life for something that you believe in. But this is the amazing thing about the New Testament. The, the people who gave their lives for it are the same as the people who would know whether it was true. Uh, they knew whether it was true. Uh, and they were sure it was. Why were they so sure? Kind of makes sense, doesn't it, that you would be a martyr if you knew for sure that your master could raise the dead. Like if you'd seen him raise the dead and you'd seen him be raised from the dead. You know, what are they going to do to you? Kill you? Okay, if you want, because Jesus can raise the dead. How do you know that? Are you 100% sure? Yeah, I am, because I saw it. And this explains why the early Christians couldn't be stopped. So Christianity, it's good and you can be sure about it because you can be sure about a person that you've met. Now, even that, again, I think I'd encourage you to be provocative about this because, I mean, I could say you're very fortunate to have me for this seminar. Um, I, you know, I'm pleased to be here, but you're really very lucky because you know what? I'm God. At this point, you're thinking, no, you're not. And the people from the Revive Planning Committee are thinking, what have we done <laughs> in inviting him? And then, no, no I am. Uh, trust me, I, I'm God. And you go, um, well, convince us. Well, I can't convince you. I mean, I can't, I can't do anything the rest of you can't do. That would be suspicious, wouldn't it? I mean, what would it take to convince you that one of your friends that you met and you heard publicly speaking to a crowd of people, and then maybe we get to hang out afterwards and... Then we become good friends and we spend three years together traveling all over the UK. And at the end of it, you would be pretty sure that I'm not God. In fact, you're sure about that even already, aren't you? After just like, wow, after 35 minutes, I've convinced you of my non-divinity. Whereas Jesus, for three years with this people, and his own friends are sure that they've met the creator of the universe. And I just want us to make this kind of concrete. This isn't just a philosophy this is a person that they knew. So um, it's good and it's knowable. We can be sure. And then finally, this is my last little challenge to somebody. Um, it's dangerous to be agnostic. You don't have to be agnostic. You're missing out on joy by being agnostic. But it's dangerous to be agnostic. And I just want to read the next paragraph of John's Opening chapter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we heard from him and declared to you. And I love this. This is the, the Christian message in 11 words. And if you think preachers go on a bit, then this is a very succinct summary of the Christian message. 11 words. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. That is the Christian message. It tells you a lot about God, doesn't it? That God isn't like in the Eastern religions a kind of mixture of light and darkness. You know, that's the yin-yang symbol, the little spiral symbol, where the, the light blends into the dark and the dark blends into the light and you've got a dot of each in the other, in the other half. God is not yin-yang. He's not light and dark. He's not good and evil. He's only light. And light is associated with truth. He's only truth. He's no lies. Light is associated with goodness. God is only goodness no evil. That is a truth about God that is at the heart of the gospel. But it also tells you from that you can infer that we've got a problem because we are not only light with no darkness in. We are at best mixed 
a mixture of good and bad. And a mixed people, when they come in, in touch with the lights, get shown up for who they really are. Um, in my bathroom in Stepney Green, where I used to live, it was, uh, the bathroom was in the middle of the house. It had no windows. Um, and it just had one of those original energy-saving lights. I don't mean the new LED ones. I mean the kind of ones where you turn the bathroom light on, and after you flick the switch, there'd be no change at all in luminescence of the room. And then about, after about three or four minutes, it slowly glowed up to, you know, just about visible. Um, I love that light because in my bathroom window mirror, I looked amazing. <laughs> like, why would you ever choose more than the equivalent of 20 watts? You know, you, you couldn't even see that I, my teeth were yellow from drinking coffee and that I had blackheads all over my nose. You know, I couldn't see any of that. I looked great. But of course, you turn the light brighter and you see everything. And it's like that with God. If he's light and there's no darkness at all in him, um, when we come face to face with him and we walk in darkness, there's, there's a problem. And John goes on to say there's two ways of dealing with this problem. You can either pretend it's not there or you can do something about it. If we claim to have fellowship with him but walk in the darkness, we lie and don't live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God is light. We're not. There's a problem. You've got two options. You can either pretend there's not a problem, which is what many people do in the world. I'm going to just pretend that I'm fine. My conscience tells me I'm not fine. Um, my friends sometimes tell me I'm not fine. Um, broken relationships sometimes tell me I'm not fine, but I'm going to tell myself I am fine. In that sort of willed self-belief. You're a great guy, Andrew, despite the evidence to the contrary. You can keep telling yourself that. And then you can tell the vicar that at your funeral. Well, not you can't tell them because you'll be dead, but your relatives can tell them. And I think the most common thing that relatives say to a vicar in preparation for a funeral is... She never did anyone any harm, or he never did anyone any harm, which, of course, is completely untrue, because all of us have hurt people. But I can pretend that I haven't. I'm just great. I could do that, or I can face up to it, and Jesus has a solution. The blood of his son purifies us from all sin. I just want to think about this, um, this message from the perspective of agnosticism, because, of course... We can have different views of ice cream flavor. You know, I could say the best flavor of gelato is fragola, um, you know, which it is. Um, but you could, for reasons best known for yourself, think that the best flavor is stracciatella, which, you know, you're wrong. But it's just a subjective thing, isn't it? I can enjoy one kind of ice cream, you can enjoy another kind of ice cream. Um, someone here could say the best football team is Chelsea. Someone else could say the best football team is Man U. I don't really care, but you could say that. And, you're, you know, it's just a relative subjective thing. But when it comes to health things, it's harder to be subjective, isn't it? When it comes to a spiritual condition that's going to kill you. Imagine you go to the, the doctor one day, and there's a little lump on your neck, and you don't like it, and you go and get it checked out. And the, they take a, a little cell sample and run some tests, and, the, and you get a phone call from the doctor, and they say... 
I'm very sorry, but you've got a tumour on your thyroid gland. And it's cancer, and you're in great danger, and you need immediate surgery. And you don't really like that answer, because it sounds very negative and frightening. And so you ask your neighbour, um, Anne, it's my next-door neighbour, Anne, how do I look today? She goes, you look well. Oh, thanks, Anne. You know, I've just been feeling a, a bit off colour recently. She goes, oh, you probably just need a good night's rest. Oh, thanks so much. So now I've got a choice, haven't I? I've got a, a doctor who said I'm in danger and I need an operation. I've got my next-door neighbour. He says I look fine. Well, which shall I believe? Uh, let's imagine I'm agnostic. I said, I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, how do I know the doctor wasn't lying? Because obviously doctors make a lot of money out of doing operations, don't they? And... Um, I think, I, I think I'm fine. Or I might not be fine. I don't know. I'm just on the fence about it. But the trouble with being on the fence about a medical emergency is you end up being in kind of denial about the problem. Maybe you put off the next operation. You put off the operation. You put off the next appointment. You go six months and you're kind of okay. And then you start to deteriorate and then it's too late. You know, when someone is giving a diagnosis of a medical crisis, you've only got two options. You can either bury your head in the sand about it, or you can do something. But there's not a middle option. There's not a neutral, on-the-fence option. Because being on the fence is the same as not taking the treatment. It's the same as rejecting it. And the Christian message is that kind of message. It's good news. It's joyful news. But it's news that tells us of a problem that we've got. And it tells us of a solution to that problem which Jesus offers. But you can't just sit on the fence and be safe. There's not a neutral way to be safe. You've got to get the surgery. Uh, you need the chemo. Uh, you need the blood of Jesus, his son, who cleanses us from all sin. Um, agnostic is very popular to be agnostic, but you don't need to be. Because Christianity is really good. It's really good. We write this to make our joy complete. And because Christianity can be really sure, really sure. It's not just a, a philosophy that some people have some beliefs. It, it's something that was actually seen, someone who was actually seen and witnessed and touched. And, and even after he was dead, they checked that he was alive by touching him. And it's dangerous to be agnostic. Um, I'd love us to um, do our best to challenge people who don't care, who are on the fence. Um, and that's certainly most of my friends. Um, just, we've run out of time, we've got one minute left. I'm going to just recommend some books. Um, I'm going to recommend my, my own book because it's basically the, what the seminar's about. Are you 100% sure you want to be an agnostic? It's on the bookstall. And then two other ones. There's actually loads of really good evangelistic resources. Confronting Christianity, probably most of you have come across it by now, but it's got the best cover of any book on the... Well, I'll say this. These two books I'm going to recommend, they both have the same kind of covers with holes in them. This is obviously the latest trend. So they've, you know, they've done the same thing with both of them. Um, Rebecca McLaughlin's um, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Biggest Religion. Um, are we better off without religion? Doesn't Christianity crush diversity? How can you say there's only one true faith? Doesn't religion cause violence? Hasn't science disproved Christianity? Isn't Christianity homophobic, etc.? Brilliant answer to those. Really recommend it. Um, and then this latest one by Glenn Scrivener, The Air We Breathe. This is quite a provocative book. He's basically showing how loads of things that modern people take for granted as being important, like consent, 
or um, equality actually come from Jesus? So he shows you go back in history and you look at the Greeks and the Romans, they didn't believe in consent. You know, if you were powerful, you slept with whoever you want and it doesn't matter if they wanted it. That was the standard. The idea that you'd have to actually consent to it because that person had enough human dignity to decide whether she wanted to go to bed with you is a very Christian idea. Um, equality, the idea that we should all treat each other with respect. You know, the, the Darwinist doesn't really believe in equality because the survival of the fittest says it's just natural that strong people crush weak people. And why would you be even worried that Putin is crushing Ukrainians? Why shouldn't he? That's just how biology works, isn't it? No, we say, each person is, um, has a right to dignity in life. Yeah, what an interestingly Christian idea. And basically, Gren Scrivener just traces that many of the things that modern people believe in shows that they go back to Jesus. It's a brilliant book. And lots of things in the bookstore. Um, let's pray as we close. Father, we, we live in a world where people are on the fence. They don't care. They're keeping you at arm's length. Perhaps because they think that Christianity would be awful. But how we praise you, Father, for the Lord Jesus, the one who came to cleanse us from our sins by his blood, but also the one who came to bring us life in all its fullness. Thank you, Father, for the joy of knowing you. Thank you for the joy of being a family of Christian brothers and sisters. And we pray that you'd make us bold. I pray that you'd make all of these um, guys bold on Monday morning to say of Jesus that he is good. And then we pray, Lord, that we might have the opportunity to show people why he is also true. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode. Stay tuned as we have more talks coming out in the coming weeks. See you next time.